coming up, another departure from Theresa May's zombie government. And will the Prime Minister be next in the firing line? We'll take a look at the meltdown in Downing Street and how it might end. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you uh, for downloading the latest podcast. Now, last time, Michael Fallon went and resigned while we were recording. Fast forward a week, and for all I know, by the time you actually get around to listening to this, the only person left in the cabinet may well be Theresa May, sobbing silently in an empty room. In sacking Pretty Patel, and let's be clear, that's what happened. She was sacked, but given the dignity of a pretend resignation letter. And the Prime Minister did the only thing that she could do. Her now former International Development Secretary decided to launch her own freelance diplomatic operation while on holiday and then seemed rather haughtily outraged that anybody might object. Lots to talk about with Robert Meakin. Robert, by any standard, Pretty Patel's actions were faintly astonishing. She went to Israel on a private holiday but was conducting government business, specifically government business that had nothing at all to do with her department, even meeting the Israeli Prime Minister and and a host of other people without bothering to tell the Foreign Office about it. She suggested changing UK government policy, broke UK government policy by visiting the Golan Heights, whose occupation by Israel has never been formally recognised by the UK. And then when she's found out She doesn't just set about misleading the press, she tries to mislead the Prime Minister. And even when she's called into Downing Street for a dressing down, she carries on misleading the Prime Minister. Uh, It was a bizarre sequence um, of events. And you certainly wouldn't... uh, Can't be much fun being on holiday either with Priti Patel, if that's her idea of unwinding. Theresa May just had no option but to to get rid of her. I mean, Theresa needed this like a hole in the head presently with all the chaos surrounding her government already. But as you say, initially, I think... instinct was okay it's a wrap on the knuckles she's clearly overreached here but then it became something far far worse and the fact Priti Patel effectively fibbed about it as well uh, meant meant that the, the outcome was inevitable what a stupid reason to throw away your career this is somebody who you know was tailor-made to be the new face of the Tory party the backstory is fantastic for the Tories her parents fled Uganda and set up a business in Britain their daughter rises as far as the British cabinet was being spoken spoken about as a possible future Conservative leader and Prime Minister. Why, in that situation, would you do something as stupid as treading on the toes of the Foreign Office without bothering to tell the Foreign Office, lying to the newspapers about it? And then it's inexplicable that you get hauled before the Prime Minister and you what? You don't tell her what's also about to come out? Did did ego overwhelm her? Was it was it more a case of ambitious networking going on on her part? It is hard to understand how she thought this was the right way to proceed and how she thought she could get away with it. Um, as you say, there's a lot of uh, support and admiration for her inside the Conservative Party. Uh, so it's a, it's a strange sequence of decisions she made and still we haven't got quite to the bottom of why she thought this was the right, right way to behave. Well, it's either arrogance on a spectacular level or stupidity on a spectacular level. It could be that she thinks, well, Theresa May is so weak that it doesn't matter if I conduct all of these meetings, if I land the Prime Minister in the situation where the Israeli Prime Minister comes to Downing Street and says, I had a very productive meeting with your International Development Secretary, leaving her to go, what meeting was that then? It doesn't matter because she's so weak, she can't do anything about it. So it could just be arrogance or it could just be stupidity, in which case 
she is so lacking in judgment. It's amazing she rose as far as she did and that she was being talked about as a possible Tory leader. And it again, you know, highlights this sense that there's a lack of control and chaos underneath Theresa May presently with with you know, government ministers feeling they can go rogue like this. As you say, was it naivety? Was it something else? At the end of the day, it looks very bad for the prime minister that she had one of her key people you know, operating in this manner, you know, without without essentially informing her. It, it for, for Theresa May, again, it just reinforces this belief that this is a woman who is losing control of everything around her. It does say something about just how beleaguered she is, that she isn't even able to sack a minister without turning it into some sort of day-long farce. I don't know if anybody's told the Prime Minister about these amazing things called phones. She could have <laughs> sacked Pretty Patel by phone. She didn't have to have 22,000 people following her flight back into Heathrow. She didn't have to have news helicopters filming every moment of the drive back into central London. All for the the brief formality of a face-to-face sacking, which took a day of fevered speculation to, to achieve the thing that we all knew was inevitable. Just those basic issues of political judgment. We talk about Priti Patel's political judgment being lacking. You know, Theresa Mays is just absent. The whole uh, Priti Patel is about to land, uh, so uh, was was quite bizarre. I mean, I mean, I, I remember similar coverage when they were chasing O.J. Simpson across America. I don't think it quite warranted that level of coverage with Priti Patel being flown back uh, to the UK. So that added a very much a slapstick, uh, a slapstick side to this already rather ridiculous story. So Priti Patel is gone and has been replaced with Penny Morton. So swapping one Brexiteer for another, swapping one woman for another, it does seem a more sensible appointment than the promotion last week of Gavin Williamson, the uh, former chief whip who somehow seems to have suggested himself for the job of defence secretary after Michael Fallon's uh, resignation. Um, Williamson was described in the FT this week as a ruthless party manager who holds a book full of MPs' secrets but has never spoken as a minister in the Commons. It is arguable, isn't it, that Penny Mordaunt, who has been a minister of state in the MOD, might conceivably have made a better defence secretary than Gavin Williamson, who has never before held ministerial office. Yeah, I mean, that was the sense. I mean, people were really talking up Penny Borden's chances in recent days that, you know, she would be the person to get that brief for the obvious reasons that, that you mentioned. Um, it didn't seem a partic- politically astute uh, promotion by Theresa May or, or by Williamson himself. Uh, and it certainly uh, went down like a lead balloon with a number of people inside the party. Williamson is obviously close to Theresa May. He was the brain behind a very successful leadership campaign last year. But it, it, it struck everybody as a rather predictable, rather cynical move. Um, having watched him in recent days as well, it'd be fair to say that he doesn't come across as the most at ease or sympathetic of figures when on screen. And let's face it, these days, that's very, very important. So I think it'd be polite to say that the jury is still out when it comes to that particular appointment. Now, you might think that two ministerial resignations inside a week would be more than enough chaos. But Theresa May, when it comes to chaos, is no underachiever. Uh, While Priti Patel and Michael Fallon may have been entirely sackable, it seems that Boris Johnson is anything but. That, Robert, is despite a series of events that really ought to have seen him sacked by now. Leaving aside the rebellion in September, where he dreamt up this series of Brexit manifestos, which he seemed, at the time, looked like he was daring her to sack him. Now he seems committed 
to trying to make the lives of British people already in foreign jails as difficult as possible, rather than act to try to secure the release of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, who's this British-Iranian woman who was jailed on a family holiday in Iran. Instead of that, Boris told MPs that, oh, she'd been training journalists in the country, which has allowed the Iranian government to say, oh, there's the proof that she was a sleeper agent. She's already been banged up for five years in a dodgy foreign jail, and now she could be looking at an even longer prison sentence. I'm I'm not sure that's actually what the foreign secretary is supposed to do. No, of course, on, on a very serious level, his actions have potentially imperiled this lady already behind bars in Iran. I mean, that's obviously the, the most important issue of all. Uh, very much secondary to that is the question about Boris Johnson's suitability to be a foreign secretary. I mean, there is no doubting, you know, his his intellect, his entertainment value. But this just reinforces the view that Boris just lacks the, the personal mental discipline that is required of a foreign secretary. The man simply wasn't on top of his brief when he made those, you know, very, very hazardous comments in recent days. In truth, Theresa May, you know, never wanted Boris Johnson as foreign secretary in the first place. She had to take him because she thought he was it was more trouble than it was worth not to have him in a senior position. But as I say, this just strengthens the opinion that Boris just isn't cut out for such a senior, such a responsible, crucial role. And you have to ask, what image is all this sending to the world of Britain? We've been hearing ministers say for the nearly 18 months now that once we leave the European Union, we will stride out bold and confident onto the world stage. Britain's still a major international power. Our foreign secretary is blundering around, intervening disastrously in just about every situation he can. Our now former International Development Secretary has been holding secret meetings in complete defiance of the rules of government. And at the centre of it all, our Prime Minister doesn't seem to know what's going on or have much of an idea of what to do next. It, it does seem that the last month or so to have just lapsed into absolute chaos. She just seems to fall from crisis to crisis. The problem is, of course, all these crises are exaggerated by the fact she does have such a small, well, non-majority. You know, if if there had been the you know, the, the, the sexual harassment uh, scandal, even when, when Theresa May had, had a bigger majority, at least then you could say, yes, this is very, very, very serious for the Prime Minister. She's attempting to deal with it, but her political future probably is still looking relatively safe. The fact that she's so fragile in terms of the numbers in the House of Commons, in terms of her personal standing amongst the British public and the party at large, makes all of these things so much more potent and poisonous for her. We've already talked about Priti Patel, about Michael Fallon, about Gavin Williamson, and, and into this list of chaos, you could throw Damien Green, the de facto deputy. He is busily denying allegations of unwanted advances to a Tory activist, claims of extreme porn on an office computer. Andrea Leadsom, who's been accused of failing to act on an allegation of rape. Uh, Philip Hammond's about to deliver a budget five months after we all know that Theresa May wanted to sack him, but was too politically weak to do it. Apparently, the relations are so bad that they can barely be in the same room together. Uh, 
sometimes a government just can't shake off bad luck. You think about John Major in the 90s and how it just sort of, his majority just slowly ebbed away, backbench rebellions, sleaze scandals. It just looked like he was cursed. And you you feel that that's where Theresa May is now. She's she's just, she just can't get a break. So much of politics is about luck. I remember the, the far off days when we used to say that David Cameron was a lucky prime minister. Theresa May, very much appears to have run out of luck of late. And I mean, it, it, it's strange when you think she's sort of rather bookended by two politicians she doesn't like. She doesn't like Boris Johnson. She doesn't like Philip Hammond. Boris is foreign secretary. Hammond is her chancellor, for goodness sake. That in itself, you, know, you think, ra- rather weakens her standing presently. She is surrounded by people who she doesn't really want in key jobs. It's a... Uh, in an ideal world, certainly in the case of Hammond, of course, she would have she would have got rid of him after the election. That was the presumption. She was going to sack him. That, of course, never happened. I get the feeling that Theresa May will go down in history almost as the Frank Spencer of prime ministers, a cultural reference for the teenagers there. <laughs> you know, cursed to a series of increasingly ridiculous disasters. At this rate, her time as Prime Minister will end with her dragged out of Downing Street clinging to the back of a London bus while on roller skates. You can only have so much sympathy for someone like Theresa May because she desperately wanted the job. We all know yeah, being a Prime Minister is largely a fairly thank- thankless occupation. Frankly, I think you have to be a little weird to want it in the first place. Now, she certainly wanted it. The way she sort of handled herself even during the EU referendum last year, she, she, she operated under the radar, hedged her bets, knowing that she could benefit potentially politically from this if things went wrong for David Cameron. So she wanted this job. She got it. She was hyped. She was hyped as the Iron Lady Mark II and was very, very happy to embrace this, this rather phony status as the bloody difficult woman. She wanted this job. Frankly, she's appeared to someone who isn't particularly good at it. And as you say, I don't think history will look particularly kindly on her. The final word on this should maybe go to David Miliband, the uh, former foreign secretary, who who used an interview with the Sunday Times uh, this week to say of Theresa May, she's obviously not a very good prime minister. Masterful understatement there. And she's not very good at being prime minister at a time that Britain needs a good prime minister. Now, all of this chaos has rather distracted our attention from the continuing harassment scandal, which this week took a dramatic and tragic turn. Carl Sargent is probably a new name to many of us, fired last week from a job in the Welsh government over allegations of inappropriate behaviour. His body was found at his home in North Wales. He is believed to have taken his own life. Robert, this obviously has raised questions in this last week about the care and support that's being offered, not just to the victims of harassment and bullying, but also to those at the centre of the allegations. It is worth pointing out at this point that in almost all cases so far, they are still just allegations. That's not to say they shouldn't be investigated and the action shouldn't be taken. But in the midst of all these suspensions and sackings, it would certainly appear from the comments of some people involved in Welsh politics that in this case in particular, here is someone who was accused of harassment, suspended from the Labour Party, sacked from his job and, according to his family, left with very little support. It's still hard to take a firm judgment on this particular case as, as the story unfolds. I think we can certainly generally 
say that there are a number of high profile politicians, no doubt, who've been swept into this sex harassment scandal unfairly. Sadly, as we discussed last week, it was inevitable that was going to happen. Such was the the, the tide that came across the number of allegations that people were going to make in, in the wake of this. There are going to be some, frankly, fake ones amid some very, very true and serious ones. Now, we don't know, you know the, the nature of this particular case with Carl Sargent. We only know so much in this instance. I think it's true to say that the Labour Party has been in a state of panic, much like the Conservative Party, about how to handle this. The, the Welsh First Minister, Carwyn Jones, is now under a lot of pressure over the way he handled this. It's, it, the feeling is he came out far too quickly uh, to, cop, to publicly comment on this when Carl Sargent himself was still pretty much in the dark over what he was being accused of. At the time, I suspect the Welsh First Minister was under a great deal of pressure to look proactive, to look like he was going to be dealing with this very, very serious issue generally head on. Now, understandably, questions are being asked. It is a reminder, I suppose, of the need to tread very carefully. These allegations, as I say, have to be taken seriously. They have to be investigated. We spent a lot of time in last week's podcast saying that the culture needs to change to encourage the victims to come forward. But at the same time, we still need to treat the alleged perpetrators fairly. I tell you what, though, that that's a very, very difficult state of affairs to achieve, to be brutally honest. Such has been the number of allegations you know, made against so many politicians. These things have to be looked at. Uh, but as I said, I think last week, you, know, you, you have to almost get through the, the mass of stuff that's coming out and get to the real core of this problem and, and find because it's very, very real, serious, frankly, crimes have been committed. There has been obviously there's been sexual harassment across Westminster that had to be addressed. But it's very difficult to say, right, this is the real stuff. This is the phony stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll split that up right now. How can you? You can't. Now, finally today, it's entirely possible that unlike the two of us, you uh, spend your time living a normal life. You don't spend your every waking moment staring at rolling news on the television. It may still have come as a surprise to you, though, to hear this week that Rupert Murdoch is threatening to shut down Sky News. Now, this is all down to his continuing desire to take over the whole of Sky, which he currently owns 40% of. Regulators are worried it would give him too much power in the British media. They're especially concerned that Sky News could, under full Murdoch control, be turned into a UK version of Fox News. His, how should we put this, uh, batshit crazy conspiracy theory amplification device masquerading as a TV news channel. Now, his response to this has been to say, look, if Sky News is an obstacle to being allowed to own the whole of the company and make even more money, then maybe we either sell the channel or just shut it down. It strikes me that this is an empty threat. Um, Rupert Murdoch always says he is disdainful of elites, particularly of the British class system. But actually, he desperately craves the respect of those elites that he pretends not to care about. And the thing about Sky News is it never makes any money, but it's his route to being taken seriously. It gets him an audience in Whitehall. It's a passport to the top table. So he doesn't just need it to continue. He needs it to continue to be a proper, respectable, balanced news organisation. So my assumption is that this threat to close Sky is a bluff to bully the regulators into allowing him to take over the whole business. But the only issue is, is anyone actually going to dare to call his bluff? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think the old boy is obviously playing game, games here. I think it's a clear uh, bit of strategy on his part. 
I, you know, at the end of the day, whatever you think of Sky News, you do. It, it, it's a good counterbalance. You've got, you know, otherwise, you know, critics would inevitably start saying, oh, the BBC are hogging the airwaves with their style of news and agenda. You know, it, it is inevitably healthy. that You've got another flourishing news channel, love it or loathe it. And I think Murdoch's well aware of that. And I think this is all, all part of a rather cynical strategy. This is the second time, of course, that Murdoch has tried to take over the whole of Sky. The last time the deal was scuppered by the phone hacking revelations of seven years ago. And that led to Murdoch's legendary appearance before a parliamentary committee, not just because somebody stuck a custard pie in his face, but also because he, he sat in front of these MPs and genuinely tried this act of sort of going, oh, I'm just a feeble old man. I've, <laughs> I've never even heard of a telephone. I'm just a feeble old newspaper man. Oh, sir, I would never do anything wrong. And then suddenly found his ruthless streak he handed over huge amounts of information to the police and landed many of the journalists he employs in legal trouble. Yes, and I think, and there's one thing we, we can certainly say about Rupert Murdoch. This man, of course, has now been around for about half a century, but a kick in, in terms of the British media has been obviously a massive figure in all that number of times, I mean, the, the crisis of recent years when people are saying, well, this, this, could, this could be the end of Rupert Murdoch. The reality is that the man always bobs back to the surface. And, you know, I mean, who, who doesn't need to earn even more than 40% of the vastly profitable business of this guy? I mean, come on, he needs a bob or two. We know he, he financially struggles. And of course, he's now having to entertain Jerry Hall as his uh, current wife. And I, I doubt her tastes are particularly cheap. So to be fair, the, the old boy's got some expenses to consider. Well, that's it for the moment. Uh, don't forget, we have uh, our sparkly website site at partygamespodcast.com where there is more on uh, Pretty Patel's fall from grace. Updates uh, on Twitter and Facebook too at Party Games Pod. Do get in touch. It's always a pleasure. Uh, for the moment though, thanks to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.